Good morning while it's still morning. It's good to see everybody and especially to be seen by you. Snowing. <laughs> well, God created the snow for his glory, believe it or not. Uh, as the songwriter said, it's beginning to feel a lot like Christmas. <laughs> I don't know what um, hymn that's from. <laughs> okay, praise be to God. Um, this is an opportunity for us to take time. I wonder if you could EQ me just a little bit, bro, and let's take out some of the um, low mid. One, two, here we go. Um, it's an opportunity for us to take some time to really just focus on the Christmas season. And um, as the cliche goes, the true reason for the season. And um, I know for 21st century Christians, it's, um, it's become somewhat of a, an issue, actually, what we do with Christmas. And so over the next few weeks, we'll be um, considering just the overarching theme of what did you expect. And today, um, my heart is to share with you what did you expect us to do with Christmas? <laughs> yep. And so um, it's a God-given opportunity to kind of share on this. It's been something that's kind of been percolating on my heart for actually a few years, really, because as we, um, as believers, look at the calendar, um, as in terms of the quote-unquote religious calendar or the Christian calendar um, of the year, there are these various seasons and festivals and events um, that take place. And so there may be many of you who are unaware of the fact that we are currently in the season of Advent. Advent. Now, it's not my purpose to explain what Advent is today, but it's just a reflection of the different seasons that appear in the Christian calendar. And so, over the years, there's been a kind of wrestling in my heart, and I've confessed this many times, I'm sure most of you have heard it before, just as to how do we reconcile, what do we do with these things? especially when we see how some of these festivals and seasonal events have aspects to it that are not just less than desirable, but actually would suggest to be quite ungodly in their origins. And Christmas is a time um, that is no different, where people have quite strongly objected to Christmas and the celebration of Christmas um, because of those reasons. So, um, despite the fact that I didn't realize I was preaching until 9.30 last night, <laughs> I'm trusting that the Lord will use this time fruitfully. And as I pray, I ask that you pray for me. Amen, my brother. I'm, I'm praying. <laughs> 
in season and out of season. Father God, we thank you so much for your goodness and your mercy. We thank you for your word, which is eternal, settled in the heavens. We thank you, Lord, that you are God, the creator of all, and you have purposed to glorify your name. And so, Lord, we ask that you would help us today, give us ears to hear what you would say to us as we consider just this, this season that we're in and what you would do with it in and through us, because that's really what counts. And so we give ourselves to you afresh. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So um, there are those who have said that um, Christmas and the, the origins of Christmas and the various expressions of Christmas are such that they are too ungodly to be associated with Christ. They are too ungodly to be um, engaged with in such a way that God would be glorified. Now, we appreciate that there's a lot of commercialism around Christmas, and there's, you know, it's an opportunity for shops to sell more stuff, for retailers and everybody to tell you about things that you need that you don't really need. And so, you know, we we get that. But I think that we have to be able to see past that and say, as Christians, what's our place in this culture of Christmas that we have? Um, There are those who would go as far as saying that figures such as Santa Claus is, is, is merely a veiled and sinister um, presentation of a demonic agenda. And so they feel that Santa Claus really is the face Satan's claws. And, um, you know, some might look at the commercialism and say, Satan has really got his claws into Christmas. But there are so many things about Christmas, even as we experience it culturally, that have good godly origins. In fact, I would even go as far as to say that Christmas itself has godly origins. And I'm not just talking about the birth of Christ, because obviously we would say that has godly origins. It was the, the, the origination of God among us, Christ having come to dwell among us. But I think that one of the key factors, and this really kind of struck me as I was considering this, one of the key factors is just how much weight and even how much glory we want to give to Satan and his works over that of Christ and the glory of God. Because even to suggest that, oh, Christmas has been overtaken by Satan and he's veiled himself in Santa and he's really flexing his claws and, and that's an ignorant perspective, not appreciating and understanding that Santa Claus is the term that was used or another name that was given to St. Nicholas, 
who was a Norwegian Christian who would wear a red suit and go around giving out presents to orphan children, motivated by the gospel. And so Saint Nicholas in the Norwegian became Santa Claus and has nothing to do with Satan's claws. And yet, it's, it's, it shows just how easily and readily we're ready to give credit to Satan where he doesn't deserve it. And so, I'd like us to think about things in terms of, from the perspective of God. God and his purposes. God and the pursuit of his glory. Now, that always sounds very selfish, in some ways, when you say that, you know, God in the pursuit of his glory. I mean, if anyone was, able, was to say, I'm pursuing my glory, we would look at that person as a really, you know, base and self-centered individual. How do you mean you're pursuing your glory? And for God to say, you know, all is for his glory can almost sound, you know, that, that's kind of contrary even to the image that I have of you, God. But God can't help but be himself. And God doesn't lie, so he's not going to pretend to be someone else just to make us feel more comfortable. He is the greatest. He is the most glorious. He is the most wonderful inherently by nature. That's who he is. Ah, oh, listen. So God is, it's not even like God's showing off. He's trying to make something of himself. He is all that he is. <laughs> he says to Moses, you want to know who sent you? I am that I am. It's like you can't define me. God is glorious. And so when God talks about all things being for his glory, it is what it is. It's a matter of fact. Somebody walks in here and they're of noble status. You know, it could be Prince Harry and his newly engaged um, bride-to-be. And there is a sense in which no matter how low-key he comes in, you know, no matter how few he has in his security entourage, he is who he is. And there are certain protocols that are potentially going to disrupt the way we do things in order to accommodate who he is. And it's not even that he has to put on all his royal robes and crown and all of that kind of thing in order to demonstrate that. God is who he is, and he is supremely glorious. And so it's reasonable that all things are for God's glory. And so, likewise, as we consider Christmas, we recognize that there are some things that need to be clarified. Um, and it's been helpful even for me as I've gone through this process of considering, you know, what are these objections against Christmas? And where do they really stand in the light of Scripture and in, and in the, 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 the facts of history? Where do they really stand? We'll clarify that. But ultimately, the, the fundamental idea is that we are to make much of Christ. We are to pursue God's glory. Amen? In doing so, we are to take every opportunity to see that we are given to that. Amen? And so, I want us to 
consider, is Christmas really pagan? And are we to have nothing to do with it? Or no? Let's pray. Father, you are good. Your mercy and your loving kindness endures forever. Lord, I sense that as your people in this life and times, there is a certain extent to which we have been robbed, Lord. We have been robbed of the passion and the power to pursue your glory. I pray that you'd restore that to us today. In Jesus' name, amen. So this notion that Christmas is pagan. People say that actually Christians took on pagan practices and are guilty of assimilating these practices into their understanding of Scripture, their view of the Bible, and as a result are guilty of corrupting the celebration of Christ's birth. And so they would look at things such as the tree and say that was used in a, in a pagan festival, Saturnalia, and it's, not, it's something we should have nothing to do with. And so there's this kind of underlying notion that Christians have borrowed from the culture wrongly in an attempt to glorify Christ. This is the fundamental idea that people tend to have. People, Christians have borrowed from the culture wrongly in order to glorify Christ. My question is, what came first? What came first? And it's always a, a helpful question to consider. Let's go back to the beginning. Let's go back, way back. <laughs> All right, then. In the beginning, God created the heavens, heavens and the earth. So we see that God was there in the beginning. God came first. Again, a testimony of his supreme nature. And he created all things. And... We see in Scripture that the, the pinnacle, the, the high point, the climax, the apex, apex of God's creation was humanity. That God made everything in the world and then, finally, he made humans. Then God said, Genesis 1.26, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion, dominion, over the fish of the sea, note that, dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens. And over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, 
He created them. God came first. This is important. Don't miss this. God came first. He was there. He existed eternally, self-existent, no beginning, no end, beyond our comprehension. That's what makes him God. That's all right. God makes everything in the world, and then he makes humans in his image and in his likeness to have dominion over all that has been created. So therefore, God didn't make humans and then make everything else. God didn't make humans and then make everything else. Order is important in scripture. If he had done it that way, it could be reasonable to assume that having made humans, there was a possibility that as God made things, there was a distinction between that which was good and holy and righteous and that which wasn't. And that man had to make that distinction and weed out from between because these things are being created after man, the one who is made in his image and likeness and has dominion over all things. It would be reasonable to say that, okay, maybe there were some things that man was to have dominion over and not other things if they were created after man. God Furnish the world with all that is in it. Like moving into a fully furnished home. Everything in the world existed and then humans came and they saw everything in the world. And not only did they see everything that existed, but they understood that it was good. Because throughout Genesis chapter 1, and God made the fish in the sea and the birds of the air and the beasts of the field, and he saw that it was good. And God made the trees and the flowers, and, the, and he saw that it was good. And so we see this repetitious cycle of God expressing his creative power and then saying, mm, yeah. And so humanity comes into this context Seeing all the good that God has created, which is everything, and is then given dominion over it in order to subdue it for the glory of God in whose image he was made. That mandate hasn't changed. All that God created is good and is to be subdued for his glory. All that God created, not just some things and not others. Ephesians 1. Boy. Making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose. We're jumping into a very long sentence that has <laughs> lots of punctuation and a full stop 
somewhere down the bottom. So it's, 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 we're jumping into context. Making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. So we're seeing that God is making known through Christ the mystery of his will according to his purpose which is in Christ, at the fullness of time, everything that exists is going to be brought under subjection. Everything in heaven and everything in the, in, the, in the earth will be brought under subjection and its purpose will be ultimately fulfilled in Christ Jesus. Everything exists for the glory of God. Everything exists for the glory of God. So when people begin to say, oh, there's some things that you can use for God's glory and not others. We have to treat that statement carefully. We have to bear in mind, first of all, everything is created for the glory of God. Adam and Eve were given dominion over all things that were created in order that they might bear his image and bring him glory. And so therefore, already that begins to expand our appreciation of just how we're able to glorify God when it comes to Christmas. Now, some would say, yeah, but what about sin? What about the fall? Good question. Doesn't that put some things beyond the reach of that which can be used for the glory of God? I mean, if something has been used so sinfully as an expression of pagan worship, then... Can that be used? Well, maybe. And maybe not. If we're going to answer faithfully and honestly. But we start from the basis of, well, all things were created for God's glory. So it's something that we ought to consider. It's something necessary and worthwhile for us to consider. Now, there are three words that I think that, as believers, they will really help us. Because as we go through life and we engage with culture, we will have to wrestle with this question in more ways than just Christmas. In more ways than just Christmas. And so it could be in the music that you listen to, it could be in the media that you watch, it could be in the books that you read, it could be in the job that you do, it could be 
there's so many different ways in which we will encounter this challenge. How do I engage with the culture around me? Prevent, promote, permit. Prevent, promote, permit. Does scripture prevent us from engaging in some activity or engaging with some item? Some say the Bible says that you can't eat shellfish. And so they would suggest it prevents us from actually eating shellfish. So we shouldn't. Any kind of prawns, shrimps, you know, your, your, your special fried rice, you have to take them to take, ask them to take it out. That, that sweet and sour king prawn that you so love. Uh-uh, off the menu. Now, there is a sense in which it's true. The Bible, at one point in time, prevents people from eating shellfish to the glory of God. But again, we have to take such an instruction and consider it in its time and in its context. So a scripture like that, we consider in the light of the New Testament. And Acts chapter 10, and Peter has a vision, and he sees all of these unclean creatures. And God says to Peter, Peter, go, kill and eat. And he says, no. Just like some of us might. And... You know, he's talking to the God who gave the command in the Old Testament, don't eat these unclean animals. But he then recognized, as God said, "Uh -uh, uh -uh, uh-uh-uh-uh, Peter, you got it twisted. You didn't see the point. That actually, what I have cleansed, you don't define and call it common. That's not your place. It's up to me. And so I'm now saying it is clean. You can eat. Because there was a deeper meaning. There was a deeper understanding. At the time, it was prevented for a purpose. Through it, I was able to demonstrate my holiness. That I am distinct and I am separate. But ultimately, that points to Christ. Who is the fulfillment. And so now, in Christ, the fulfillment having both been fulfilled, you are able to be free. For he who the sun sets free is free indeed. Amen. And so despite the fact that there may be a sense in which, oh, initially we'd think it pre- prevents it. When we look at it contextually, we understand that from the New Testament, it has actually been promoted. And so it then leads us to those things where there are certain things that the Bible clearly and blatantly promotes. And those things we are to do. In fact, in the book of James, it says, he who knows to do something and doesn't do it, to him that thing is sin. And so there are things that are clearly stated in Scripture that we are to do. Love your neighbor as yourself and love the Lord your God with all your heart, your mind, and your strength. Like, basic, fundamental. Okay? If I don't do that which the Bible promotes, I'm in error, I'm in sin. Yet there are those things which actually are neither explicitly prevented or explicitly and blatantly promoted. 
And in that, there is liberty. We are permitted. And in this, we see that God, in his infinite wisdom, has purposed that his glory would be spread throughout the world. So, in Genesis, God says, Man and woman are to go forth and multiply. Spread throughout the world. Spread his image and spread his dominion throughout the world. And yet, we then come to, you know, that was the creation mandate. We come to the new creation mandate in Matthew chapter 28. Go into all the world. And so again, we see the sense of throughout the whole world, God's glory is to be spread in Christ Jesus. And so in this, there's liberty. Different cultures, different people groups, different tongues, different languages, all a part of God's purpose. And rather than God prescribe everything to a letter that then begins to limit cultural diversity and expression, he gives us enough information to understand what we're not to do, what we are to do, and in the rest that we have permission, we have liberty. There was a, a, a notable character in the early church um, uh, a man called Augustine among the early church fathers. And he had this saying, in the essentials of the faith, unity. In the essentials, unity. In the non-essentials, liberty. But in all things, charity, meaning love. People want to enforce this notion that you can and can't do something in ways that the scripture doesn't. And they want to impose on people their opinion fundamentally, which is what it comes down to. This is pharisaical. This is what the Pharisees were guilty of. And Jesus challenged them and he condemned them in the book of Mark. And he said, you are guilty by your traditions of adding to the word of God and making it of no effect. Imagine that, something that can actually negate and nullify the power of God's word. It doesn't strip it of its power, but it hinders or blocks it because of man-made traditions. That being imposed as equal to and as important as God's word. And so in this, we see that actually, when people want to impose on us their ideals and their ideas, that we should bring everything back to Scripture and recognize that where Scripture doesn't dictate one way or the other, we have liberty. This is why in Colossians... 
the Apostle Paul says this, Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival, or a new moon, or a Sabbath. Listen, punchline. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Now, in their context and in their era, they were talking about religious... They weren't just talking about Christmas and Christmas activities and what you're going to do or not going to do, if you're going to have decorations or not. Or it didn't, they, were, they were talking about things that were actually historically religious, that had even greater weight in their culture. And yet he's saying, look, don't let anyone judge you when it comes to food or drink. Whether you're, whether you're eating shellfish and bacon or not. Don't, don't, don't be bound to other people's opinions. That's what he's saying. Let no one pass judgment on you. People will do it, but we're not supposed to take it on board. With regard to a festival, oh, you celebrate Christmas. You're a Christian, yeah? Boy, pagan. <laughs> and if I do, I went, I decorate my house, brightest on the street. I still love Jesus. Oh, you don't celebrate Christmas, huh? You, what, you, what you, you mean you don't, you don't have a Christmas tree in your house? Do you really love God? <laughs> because there are people, maybe not in our context, but there are people in other contexts, and they're just like, Christmas is about Christ. I mean, and all of these things, and in their mind, they understand the meaning and how they all sim symbols that point to Christ, and they're thinking that if you're not engaging in that as a Christian, then you're less than a Christian. Some B-Tech Christian, <laughs> second class And yet, these things are a shadow. It's not about these things. It's not about them. These things are a shadow, but the substance belongs to Christ. Jesus is the substance. So in whatever you're doing, let Jesus be the substance. Amen? Why? can't get away from this. For by him, all things were created. We're back at creation again. By him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. You know that even includes the devil? You know the devil was created by God and is used by God for his glory? All things were created through him and what? It's there. And for him. For him. By him, through him, and for him. And he is before, notice, order, all things. And in him, all things hold together. <laughs> 
Jesus is the substance. It's all about Jesus. And so in chapter 3, Paul goes on to say, look, whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So everything ought to be done in his name. And, and that isn't just, you know, at the end of our emails, you know, we put... ITJ, or INJ, or however it works, ITNJ, in the name of Jesus, or it's, it's more than just abracadabra. It's when, when a, a police officer flags you down, if they were doing so in the way that they used to back in the um, you know, 17th, 18th century, they would say, stop in the name of the law. True, that's what they would say. They would say, stop in the name of the law. And what they were doing is they were declaring their relationship to the law. And as being one who is representing the law. And who is endorsed and empowered by the law to act on its behalf. And so when it says, in the name of the Lord Jesus, it's not... Every, it's not, you have to kind of quote this mantra, this abracadabra, every time you pray or every time you purpose to do something. That's not what it means. It means that first and foremost, you have a recognition of what it means to be in right relationship with Jesus and that you are acting as one who is endorsed and empowered by him through relationship with him and are sent to represent him in what you're doing for his glory and his honor. And so whether you expressively celebrate Christmas or you celebrate Christmas every day. So I, um, I celebrate Christmas every day, uh, one day in a year. Whatever you do, do in the name of the Lord Jesus. Giving thanks to God the Father through him. And I love that because what it does is it, it causes us to not be focusing on someone else. Whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks for the opportunity, giving thanks for the privilege, giving thanks for the ability to do that which we do in his name. And so I, have, I really ought not to have time to be thinking about what you're doing or not doing because I'm so grateful for what God permits me to do. That's where my focus ought to be because that is an expression of God's grace. And so, let's consider some implications. People say, oh, Christmas is pagan. No, let's go back. Creation. God created everything. He created humanity. He created everything good. In fact, after he had created people, he said, 
and it is very good. Before the fall, God put man in the garden to tend and to keep it. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he formed. And so the man was put in garden, in the garden of Eden, to work it and keep it. This is before the fall, bear in mind. And this is the first expression of culture that we see. Two, there are so many important principles, but two I want to highlight. First of all, when it talks about man working the garden, how did Adam work the garden? He worked it however he found best, however he chose to. God didn't prescribe to him how he was to do it. But in this we see man considering, okay, what am I going to do? How am I going to do it? Having that liberty and going about that. And that is regarded as the first expression of culture. Those things that we do, how we do them, and why we do them. He was doing this as unto the Lord because the Lord put him there. And so he had freedom and liberty. Whilst at the same time we understand that he was to serve, which is the Hebrew word for work, and to protect, which is the Hebrew word for keep. And so there was a sense in which he was to serve the Lord in his work and to protect that which God has authored and the honor and glory of his name. This is all before the fall. This is all before the introduction of sin. So Adam is on job. Praise be to God. Seeking the glory of the Father. Then comes the fall. Snaky serpent comes. Deceives the woman. And what do Adam and Eve do? What is the act that they do that defines and represents the fall of humanity? Open question. You can shout that. They, before they hid from God, what did they do? Before, you, you're running ahead. You're running ahead. They ate, the, ate of the fruit. As Emmanuel said, they disobeyed God. So they disobeyed God. Fundamentally, that was it. Whatever the fruit was, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter because it's the act of I'm going to rebel. I'm going to defy God. And they done that by taking something which God had created and putting it over the creator. First expression of paganism. Paganism in the garden. Pagan. <laughs> Sometimes it's just nice to say. I don't know why. <laughs> but from there, we all became pagans. We were born pagans. We were born in sin. No, seriously. Because we all inherited that same nature and the reality. People are like, oh, it's not fair. Why should I have to go down for Adam's wrong? That's not fair. But the reality is that if you were there and if I were there, we would have done the same thing. Adam was made innocent, but he was not made divine. Remember that. 
God knew he was going to sin. It was all part of the plan. Revelation tells us that Jesus is the lamb that was slain before order, the foundation of the world. It wasn't a surprise to God. God didn't, oh my gosh, what have they done? Son, what are we going to do now? I don't know. Spirit, what do you reckon? Father, it's a mess. Like, there was no panic in heaven. None. They knew exactly what was going on. Because man was created with the capacity to fail on the basis, not even just that they took a fruit and put it before God, but they as a created being honored themselves above God. And so, as it says in Romans 1, they honored the creation rather than the creator. They exchanged the place of priority and supremacy. And in doing so, They introduced paganism, paganism into the human order and into the human experience. And so even those things which were created good then became corrupted. And we see that even in nature. And so everything's corrupted as a result of sin. So we've got a dilemma If there are things that cannot be used for God because they're sinful, then doesn't that mean that nothing can be used for God? Furthermore, more importantly, doesn't it mean that you could never be used for God? And I could never be used for God. And because we're born in sin and shaped in iniquity. And so, God's, God's hands would be tied if that were even a possibility. We fast forward and we see God used Noah to repopulate the world after the sin had got to the point where God had to wipe everyone out. And yet, Noah wasn't completely and utterly righteous, even though he was an upright man. He gets drunk and he dishonors the Lord in his behavior. And we see the, the frailty and we see the, 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 residue, the residual corruption in his heart and life. And you're like, ah, oh, if this only were the one. But no. Fast forward some chapters and God, God calls Abraham. And where was Abraham when God called him? He was in a place called Ur. Maybe it was called Ur for a reason. You know when people say Ur. They were pagans worshipping the moon god. And yet God chooses him in that culture and separates him 
for his purpose. And we still see the failings and frailty of Abraham. He lies and he runs ahead of God and he takes his um, maiden and has a child when God says, wait on the promise. And again, we're like, oh my gosh, it could have been him, the one who's going to put the record straight. Fast forward some generations. You've got David, King David, 2 Samuel 7. God's made a promise. I'm going to make your house, your lineage, an, an everlasting lineage, intimating that it's from his household the Messiah would come. And yet, the same David, man after God's own heart, sins, adultery, murder. Because even though God purposed to use him, even though God separated him for his glory, he was still flawed. He was still broken. He was still corrupted by sin, as we all are. And this is everything that we touch. And so, where do we look then? If we're suggesting that only those things which are pure and holy can be used, not only ought we to count out everything else, we ought to count ourselves out. Because when we look at ourselves and even the history of God's dealings with people, nobody and nothing would qualify. And so, we understand and appreciate that even Christ, the Messiah, would come and take on the likeness of sinful man. Take on the appearance, take on the likeness of sinful man. And in doing so, he dwelt among us as sinful people. And he himself was even called a sinner. You glutton, you drunkard, you friend of sinners. I mean, you can't claim to be anything used by God. You, look at you. You're, you're less than acceptable by our religious standards. And yet they did not know that they were speaking to him who is God in the flesh. The one who redeems and makes new. And so as we consider the power of the Savior who himself was hung on a tree in order that he might redeem. He who was hung on a tree but born of a virgin and being born of that virgin gifts were brought to him. He who is the world's greatest gift and through whom the world would receive the greatest gift, 
This is the same child that was born on the starry night while shepherds watch their flocks. And come on, we understand that it's highly unlikely that it was December the 25th. Because no self-respecting shepherd is going to be out in a cold field. Like, I, I, had to, I, had to look, I had to look into this. I thought to myself, I wonder if because of where Israel is, it's not, not really that cold in the winter. They have snow in Israel. In fact, last January, the 25th of January, they had snow in Jerusalem. Snow is not uncommon in Israel. In, the winter is cold in Israel. No self-respecting shepherd is going to be sitting out in the field with flocks by night in December. So despite the fact that Christmas is a time that was set apart, was separated to recognize. And here's the thing. Oh, this is crazy. People talk about, oh, you know, Christians borrowed from the pagan festival of Saturnalia and took things that they done and, and took their date of December the 25th and incorporated into that, that. And that's where Christmas, no, that's not where Christmas originates from. In fact, there is evidence amongst the early church years before. Saturnalia was introduced in 274 AD. Years before that, there is evidence amongst Christian writings that there was a winter festival in which Christ's birth was being honored. So which came first, remember, order? Who borrowed from who? Because actually, it looks like the pagans borrowed from Christians as opposed to Christians borrowing from pagans. And so we're grateful that God in Christ is so glorious, so mighty, so wonderful, that he is greater than all that he has created and is able to use all that he has created for his glory. Even those who have been corrupted and scarred and marred by sin, which is everyone. And so, what do you expect us to do with Christmas? Apart from use it to make much of Christ. And what a wonderful time. You know, they say a third of the planet observes Christmas. At least. Over two billion people around the world observe the season of Christmas. What an evangelistic opportunity. At a time when people are using symbols that find their origins in symbols and representations of God's work through Christ, but they don't know what it means. People talking about Santa Claus, but don't know who the first Santa Claus really was and why he became famous, notorious. What? They don't, they don't know. What an opportunity for us to preach Christ. To infiltrate and invade the culture with the knowledge of the truth. 
We are called to go out. We are not called to retreat in a bunker and fearfully avoid interaction with the world and the culture in which we live. However you choose to do that, don't judge another for the way that they choose to do that. And likewise, don't be bound by the judgments of others. He who the sun sets free is free indeed. Praise be to God. Um, I'm going to ask the team to come up. Let's stand. Father God, we thank you for the way in which you flex your authority and power over all things. Declaring that to the pure, all things are pure. Recognizing that actually all things were made for your glory. And as we put our hands to them, we are to do so for your glory and your honor. For the fame of your name. And whether it be Christmas, whether it be art, whether it be accountancy, or whether it be food in the kitchen, house building, cab driving, all things are to be done for your glory. And for the honor of your name. And so Lord I pray that you would encourage our hearts. Encourage our hearts to utilize the freedom that you've given us in Christ Jesus. And not to be those who simply grumble and mumble and moan. And, are, and become purely defined by what we're against. Oh bar humbug. Lord, may we be people who express that joy that was declared toward the world. May we exhibit that peace that was expressed toward men in the angelic declaration. And do so with great effectiveness as we seek to bring honor to your name. Lord, we thank you for Christmas. We thank you for Christ. We thank you because without him, huh, this world would be without hope. Have your way among us, Lord, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen. Join us next time for more of God's truth to transform your reality.